Hello and welcome to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten. I'm coming at you once again, as always, to merge the nerd multiverse. And I'm joined by my good friend, partner in crime, Arian Darby. Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Arian, and I just wanted to deliver a quick disclosure. I am currently an employee of Warner Brothers Entertainment, and any feedback and opinions that I have are solely my own and are not a reflection of the company. In this episode, we're talking about the popular Netflix series Stranger Things. We're joined in the lab for this episode by biologist, PhD student at UC Riverside, and science communicator Angela Mancy. We discuss the strange place that is the upside down, evolution in extreme environments, animal interactions, and the complex, strange, and totally fascinating life cycle of the Demogorgon. So gear up and get ready for action. You're gonna take out the Demogorgon with a slingshot? First of all, it's a wrist rocket. Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So for this episode, we are going to jump in to something a little bit different. We're going to hit Stranger Things, classic, instant classic, um, I would say. Uh, and obviously, you know, for this episode, we are, uh, we got my man Arian in the lab, as always. Hello, hello. And today we're also joined by a very special guest, Angela Mancy. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. So, Angela, you are a graduate student, yes. a PhD student at yes. UC Riverside. That is correct. Have you advanced to candidacy yet? No, but that should be happening very soon. Very soon. Yes. As in, like, I in the next hour? Uh, oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> this is the exam. No, um, yeah. it, it should be on May 18th. Wow, very, it is very soon. Mm-hmm. Okay, how are you feeling about it? A little bit nervous, Yeah, but I think everyone does. So. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, you know, during the course of your PhD, there comes a time, there comes a time in every young graduate student's life <laughs> um, where they start to feel a little bit different about science. No, um, <laughs> there comes a time like two years, typically like two or three years in, um, you have to take a series of tests uh, and present a, uh, a proposal for your dissertation uh, and if your committee approves and you pass all the tests you then go from being a PhD student to a PhD candidate and I remember when I went I went from like I crossed from uh, from student to candidate and I got to change that on my email uh, it was just like the so most good. amazing feeling in the world it's like small victory mm-hmm. but a victory nonetheless taking you, it to the next level yeah <laughs> so what at uc riverside what is it that you study so i'm in the lab of joel Sachs, and we're studying the effects of crop domestication on the way that the crops are able to interact with microbes in symbiosis interesting so a lot of your work has to do is it like microbial ecology? Is that yes. the, that's the general field? Yes. Now, w- why did you get 
interested in this? So I've always been interested in microbes. Um, when I was a kid, I got sick all the time. And while I was sitting at the doctor's office, I was just wondering, what is going on with me? Uh, what is happening <laughs> in my body right now? Um, and so like, I started from a point about learning about disease. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. But then when I went to college, I started learning more about beneficial microbes. Mm. And that was like fascinating to me, that there's this in invisible world of microbes that where while some of them can make us sick, some of them are actually like essential for our development. Mm. Um, and so going into graduate school, I was considering studying the human microbiome, but then I started learning a little bit more about the plant microbiome and the different microbes that help plants grow and develop and get all the nutrients that they need. And that's kind of where I ended up. So right now I'm sort of studying a little bit of agriculture, a little bit of microbes, lots of symbiosis. So um, yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, that's awesome. So and in addition to your graduate work, mm -hmm. um, you are also a budding science communicator, <laughs> uh, which is how we met. Yes. Um, and you've done this this video, this online video on YouTube mm -hmm. about um, the biology of the Demogorgon and mm -hmm. Stranger Things. Like, how did you? How did these two things come together for you? <laughs> so I I love television, love movies, um, and just in watching the second season of Stranger Things. Afterwards, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about all of the scientific concepts that I felt like were being portrayed in this show. And I wanted to like dive a little bit deeper into that and like really understand like the ecology of these different organisms and like where are they living? How are they interacting? And I feel like there, there's so many great hints in the show mm. towards uh, what could actually be going on there. So I just I wanted to dig into it a little bit deeper. And for me, whenever I learn something new, I want to tell people about it. Yeah. So. So how, how can folks find your video on YouTube? So the title of my channel is Trope Hunters. So if you search Trope Hunters, you should find it. Um, and the name of the video is Demogorgon Biology. Awesome. Um, and there will be more coming soon. Awesome. Yeah, well, I certainly look forward to it. Uh, and there's more coming right now because we're going to jump into the biology of Stranger Things. Now, this is like Stranger Things. I mean, it was it's like a cultural phenomenon. It's like got this whole kind of throwback vibe. It's like, you know, Ghostbusters meets E.T. meets 80s amazingness. Um, so, Arian, can you give us a little bit of a little bit of rundown? Like, what is Stranger Things? Tell us tell us uh, what this story is about. Yeah, sure. So it's a show that debuted on Netflix in 2016, created by the Duffer brothers, Matt and Ross Duffer specifically. And it's essentially a love song to the 1980s, sci-fi, mm -hmm. puberty. All that good stuff. <laughs> tabletop gaming. I remember that. <laughs> and uh, general life before <laughs> the internet. Uh, and so the show focuses on following the lives of about five insanely precocious children mm -hmm. and strange things that happen to them while they live their lives in the small sleepy town of Hawkins, Indiana. Yeah. The strange things that, that hence the title. It's crazy how yeah. I did that. Yeah. It's amazing. That's, that, that's why we have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm thinking about stranger things, like obviously, I mean, is, I mean, there's so much stuff that we could dive into. Obviously there's like 11, which sure. is like, a whole thing you know, in and of herself um, that I think that's a difficult thing to get in on the biology side of like, you know, I don't know like the biology of like making people's heads explode with your mind. Um, she does that a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I want to learn though. That's it, it would be nice. Uh, maybe you should switch your PhD. Um, you know, but the one thing that, that is 
like super fascinating to me is like this sort of parallel dimension that we see over and over and over again in um you know in this show so we get this and i'm not sure like exactly what has happened but there's like some corporation in hawkins indiana and they're doing some kind of experiment i had i still have no idea what kind of experiment they were doing or why they were doing it but they were doing it and it like opens up this dimension to like a new like some parallel reality and then things start coming over from that reality and messing all kinds of stuff up now when we see this um what they call the upside down right we see this really sort of different kind of world and i think this is really what i want to dig into for this episode you know so there's a few major things about the upside down right one there is a complete absence of sunlight it's a very dark environment um and in those types of environments, you know, organisms typically have to use other uh, types of energy for resources. So, you know, if we think about like deep sea environments, like a lot of organisms use like geothermal energy instead of the sun. Um, and uh, and then their metabolism right, also has to change right, because it's a very different source of, of energy. So you see this like whole scale, like metabolic reorganization of these crazy crazy organisms like things like using metals for instance um you know as um uh as substrate to extract energy from which is uh, absolutely ridiculous uh and in many of these ecosystems that don't have direct sun um but in a lot of cases they are still dependent in some way on the ecosystems like energy pulling energy from ecosystems that are dependent on the sun right so in these deep sea environments you get things like um uh like deadfall right when like whales and like all this dead energy that sort of you know drifts down into these super dark zones like all that is energy that ultimately came from the sun right things photosynthesized things ate the things that photosynthesized things ate the things that ate the things that photosynthesized <laughs> uh and, but it all really starts with the sun and these environments become pretty dependent on it even in uh things like cave ecosystems for instance you know where it's completely dark the um you know a big sort of base resource for the entire ecological community is actually bat guano bat poop Right. But obviously those bats are eating things that ate things that photosynthesize things from exactly. the sun. Right. So, again, you have this sort of dependence. And that's kind of what we see with the upside down a little bit. Right. Where, um, you know, when we see them walk into this environment, um, it's pretty barren. Right. It's kind of like this shadow version of our like you see buildings. I don't know who built those buildings because there don't seem to be people. There don't seem to be much in the way of organisms except for the, these like demogorgons and, um, you know, and then like all these vines and, you know, all these different, these like complicated things. But there's not a whole, it's very different from what we know uh, in our own world and in our own, in our own ecosystems. When we have these ecosystems that are in some case dependent on, uh, on other ecosystems, right, when we consider the upside down, it seems like from what we see from the show, there's a little bit of this as well in the sense that, you know, we have these these animals, I'm going to call them, sure. that are sort of moving across into our world and they're feeding on things and they're bringing individuals back into this ecosystem, or into their ecosystem in this uh, in this upside down, you know, which is essentially scavenging, right? You're bringing resources like from a light dependent environment into a non uh, light dependent uh, environment. So with this sort of dependence, right, it, 
it brings up this um, this really interesting question for me and like all the different ways that that ecosystem and the organisms therein seem to be dependent on what's happening in our world. And I'm not sure how this played out before this experiment, but it seems like it must have in some degree, right? Maybe, maybe that is the thing that, you know, legends and, you know, scary stories are made of, like these animals that are like making their way into, into parallel universes. And we just like crack the door open even more, right? With this experiment in, in, in Hawkins. So Angela, when, you know, as somebody, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about microbes and like the interaction between species. Like when you're looking at, um, when you're looking at Stranger Things, like how do you think this sort of dependence plays out in terms of the relationship between the organisms in the upside down and organisms in our world? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, clearly they're they're using us for some kind of an energy source. Um, obviously, the demogorgons are. Mm -hmm. um, but then then we look when we look at the vines, it's a little bit more unclear because it seems like the vines themselves are still doing okay in the upside down. Maybe maybe without feeding on any kind of other organic matter like mm -hmm. people, um, which which makes me think that they must be getting their energy either from inorganic compounds so basically from rocks so we would call them like lithotrophs mm -hmm. um or it's possible that um that if the demogorgon along with the shadow monster if they have invaded the upside down from somewhere else which seems very likely it seems like something the duffer brothers have sort of insinuated that they're not from there they're coming from somewhere else that maybe there was organic life in the upside down at some point and that at this point they've basically depleted that and are now moving on uh. to our world um, to continue to feed but it's really unclear um, it's hard to say but certainly um, the demogorgons are using us as some kind of a source for energy carbon blood mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and and not only that but um, it, you know there's evidence in the show that they're they're using us uh, as some kind of a nesting ground somehow um, human beings and possibly other mammals are taking part in this reproduction process where we're seeing um, people coughing up slugs um, yeah. which in, in season two it seems to be that that's like the precursor to what a demogorgon is it's so nasty um, so not only are we their food but we're also their building materials. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like this really weird invasive species mm -hmm. with a super complex lifestyle. Right. Yeah, they're they're kind of parasitic in nature. Um yeah, it's they're they're creepy, they're gross, they're exciting. <laughs> <laughs> they're also predators. Um <laughs> Yeah. It's like this and this weird idea. I mean, that's the thing for me is like to have when you go into the upside down and you see Right. I mean, it's what is supposed to be an ecosystem. Right. Mm -hmm. And typically, but whatever it is, has like very obviously it's either been destroyed or is like barely holding on. Exactly. It's on its last breath. Exactly. But one of the things is like typically in those types of environments, the last thing you expect to see is like apex predators. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And yet that seems to be the only thing that's around. So this idea that these these creatures may be in some sense like some kind of a... Um, like an invasive species that's yes. sort of moving between parallel universes. Um, that's, I think that's a that's an interesting interesting take for sure. Yeah, everything about that world just seems and feels predatorial too. Like even with the vines that you were mentioning, yes. they kind of creep out and spread across like weeds, and it's got this dynamic where you can like contain it, but you can't really stop it. 
and I feel like it was in season two when they first kind of discovered how intricate the labyrinth of the vines were underground. Uh, one of the things that was happening too was like they're kind of essentially destroying everything in its path. Like it was ruining pumpkin patches or what mm -hmm. have you in, in different farmlands. And so, uh, yeah, like the, the world itself is massively threatening. Yeah, it's just like it's like sucking life out of yes. everything that it touches, essentially. It's depleting every energy source that it finds. Um, yeah, it's really, really wild. Uh, it, and it, it feels like they're also like feeding on like the dead and decaying organic matter mm -hmm. as well. So like maybe in that sense, it's more of like a saprophyte. Um, so when you, so you've used a couple, so when you say, <laughs> I love saprophytes, yeah. <laughs> I, I got this one, Shane, hold yes, on. Yes, go yes, go when, for it. When Angela says saprophyte, uh, go ahead, Shane. Uh -huh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, me not, let me not talk over you. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, bad. I'll jump in. I'll jump in. Um, um. Yeah, so uh, so Angela, when when you say saprophyte, like mm -hmm. exactly, so what it, what what sort of organisms are we talking about here? Um, typically fungal, um, but I believe there's more than that. I think I think it's possible for other types of organisms, but usually when we're thinking of sapro saprophytes, we're thinking of fungi. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, I mean, it's, it's basically what I just said. They're they're feeding on dead and decaying organic matter, um, so they're not seeking out living sources of, of carbon. They're they're sequestering all of the nutrients that they need from something that's already in the process of breaking down mm -hmm. um, and in that process of feeding they're continuing the process of breakdown and contributing to the ecosystem as a whole yeah. and nutrient cycling and and typically the, these sorts of organisms I mean because they sort of accelerate the decay process mm -hmm. it also makes when you're talking about bioavailability making mm -hmm. those nutrients more available for the ecosystem to then continue to recycle this is typically a pretty positive thing right it's a good thing it sounds really dark yeah. um but it's actually incredibly important yeah, it's the circle of life mm -hmm. um they're the little recycling centers exactly um but in the case of you know like what we see in in hawkins it does not seem to be this positive thing no. uh, and uh, it seems to just be essentially like sucking the life out of absolutely right. everything more of a pathogen um, yeah to begin with so so you study these interactions mm -hmm. um between different organisms mm -hmm. like what makes the difference between like a type of interaction that that results in balance versus a type of interaction that results in the sort of imbalance that we see in uh in hawkins well, it's it's really a razor edge, and and that that allegiance, that alliance between two different organisms can shift at any moment, um, which mm. is sort of wild and terrifying. Um, you you talked a little bit about the different types of symbiosis in the Venom episode, which I really loved. Yeah. Um, Great shout out, by the way. <laughs> Love uh, that show. Yeah. Yes. Hit, hit up Venom. <laughs> this show. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so like, I'll give an example. So specifically what I'm studying is cowpeas, which are black eyed peas. You might've heard of them. Okay. Um, and they have interactions with soil microbes called Brady rhizobia. So we have a plant and we have microbes, um, and they actually sort of come together and the plant absorbs the microbes into its root systems. And then once it's there, they sort of trade resources. So they become friends. Um, the plant's giving the microbes carbon. The microbes are giving the plant nitrogen. Um, so it's basically like one big communal living situation mm -hmm. where they're sharing what they have with the other organism. Um, but something that we see is that 
what if the microbes have the ability to get into the plant and take what the plant is giving but give nothing back? Mm. Um, and, and in this situation, it's actually kind of a negative thing for the plant because it's, it's, it's taking these microbes in, it's giving them its resources, and in return, the microbe is giving it nothing. Just being selfish. Absolutely. So the plant is investing in this relationship and getting nothing back from it. Um, and in turn, it's actually sort of to the plant's detriment. It's, it's bad for the plant. Yeah, the plant put itself out there. Exactly. You know, is like trying to do everything it can to build this relationship. Mm-hmm. And you got those microbes and they just just taken. Just shacking up. Giving nothing. <laughs> I've dated nothing. some microbes like that. <laughs> <laughs> so so even just that that little bit of a shift of um, whether or not they're giving this this specific resource of fixed nitrogen back that can dramatically change the relationship. Um, and, and when you're studying symbiosis as a whole, um, I'm, I'm friends with a few other researchers who are studying the difference between like pathogens and symbionts. And really there isn't a clear difference. Um, mm. Both of them cause some kind of infection. And uh, from there, it just kind of depends on what happens next. Is it, is it bad? Is it good? It, maybe it's good with some organisms, but not with others. Mm. Um, that's something that we see in what I study. So, so maybe some of the bacteria on one plant uh, will totally be just absolutely horrible. Give nothing back to the plant. But if you put it on a different species, it's perfect. It's wonderful. It totally works out. Hmm. So it um, seems like sort of a tenuous relationship. Yes. You know, when, you know, I think, you know, when we think about, you know, things like altruism and like, we like to think those are the things that dominate a lot of aspects of, of life, especially when it comes to these like beautiful stories right. of like interspecies connectivity. And, but it, it seems like it's always sort of like, you know, like a selfish. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like kind of like a tenuous treaty, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is fine for now. How much do you have to give so you can get something back out yeah. of it? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we'll give a little bit to you as long as we can get some until we can figure out how to get it from you right. for free. Exactly. Uh, so obviously out of this ecosystem, this very strange ecosystem that is the upside down, we also have these creatures and some of the most terrifying creatures I've ever seen on a screen with the Demogorgon. Now, the Demogorgon biology is fascinating to me because there seem to be so many different things going on. Um, you know, so we have these sort of weird, I guess, phases of its life cycle, right? Where we have, you know, some sort of a slug situation and then kind of like a tadpole thing happening and then some like bipedal or semi-bipedal apex predator mm-hmm. thing happening. And then maybe like some dog form or something in between. Sure, yeah. 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 Hey, <laughs> I, I got you here. Yeah, but we're, we're all scientists. Yeah. So yeah. obviously yeah. nomenclature good. is important. Yeah, uh, good, so good use of the term nomenclature. Thank you, thank you. I PhD. Stop it. M-D- Stop it. M-D-M-A- Stop L-M-F-A-O. It. I mean, look, we shouldn't <laughs> L-I-E. Like <laughs> throw our credentials around, with, upon which there are numerous. But I think Destin uh, kind of categorized them actually, um, and so he said: slug, polywog, frogagorgon, catagorgon, demagogue, and then demogorgon. Wow! So if we're gonna do it, okay, I think we need to to do it right and, okay. and respect the 
etymology. I'm gonna, mm. I'm gonna mm. work on that. Yeah. All so, right. so yeah. what? Are, what are, <laughs> so so you, you threw out these different categories. Uh, what? So describe each of these for me. I can't. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, sure. Sure. So. so <laughs> So we see different parts of this um, play out and actually different seasons, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we only see like some parts of the life cycle, I think, pop up in season two and in season three, right. like some other stuff happens that's like super crazy that we'll get to. But um, if we start at the beginning, we got this Demogorgon, right? And he's, um, you know, this sort of semi-bipedal, I think, you know, he like yeah. stands mm-hmm. on hind legs. Yeah. Sometimes he goes around on all fours. Final form, yep. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, he has like this super strange mouth morphology that's like looks very flower-like, um, completely eyeless. Um, you know, it's like weird, like sort of pigmentation things happening. It's like very kind of drab um, appearance. And it's interesting to me because this is actually this, the types of uh, of morphology that you see pop up over and over and over again in these same types of environments. So if you're considering things like cave environments and deep sea environments, um, you know, in these environments that lack light, for instance, you get uh, convergent evolution of a lot of different species towards being completely eyeless. And a lot of times, like we talk about convergence in the Flash of Two Worlds episode, right? this idea like the repeatability of evolution. And I think one of the greatest examples that we have is in these extreme environments where you have an entire ecosystem of organisms that are all trying to adapt to the same uh, types of environments. So in this case, like super low light environments where it may be pitch black. Uh, and one of the things that we see is a lot of times these organisms, and sometimes it's fish, sometimes it's spiders, uh, all sorts of organisms have a tendency to lose their eyes. They, either they become um, severely reduced to the point where you can only really tell light from dark um, to the point where in some cases there is just complete loss of eyes. And that's essentially because, you know, if growing eyes is expensive, right? You got to spend energy to do that. And if you're not going to use it, then why spend the energy to do that? So evolutionarily speaking, you know, there's no selection to keep these complex organs around if they don't really serve a purpose in this in this uh, super dark environment. So the eyelessness that we see with the Demogorgon in that case is actually really interesting. Uh, and also the same with the pigmentation. So a lot of times that we see uh, in these types of environments, um, you get the complete loss of pigment. All right, so you get these really sort of drab white um, individuals that have like no pigment deposition. We don't, the, um, uh, the Demogorgon, it's not, like albino, but it is does have this like sort of really drab sort of appearance that suggests maybe something like that is playing out as well. Now, what's really interesting is that these types of environments, you know, these extreme adaptations, in some cases, they were, have only recently been discovered. Right? So uh, in this case, in our universe, right, I mean, there was the very recent discovery of, you know, in what in some cases could be considered like our own little upside down uh, in this world, uh, in the Congo Basin, actually. Uh, so in uh, the uh, right around like 2007, 2008, um, there were uh, these expeditions uh, that went into the Congo Basin looking 
at rivers and there was a fish that was um, that had been described from this river that was completely eyeless um, you know completely very elongate and had very little pigment right? one of these phenotypes that you you very quickly equate to being in these like dark environments but you know we're talking about in a river system right so there aren't necessarily any caves that were readily apparent you know it's not a deep sea environment but it suggested that there were maybe some aspects of this river that these animals were living in that had not actually yet been discovered so yeah so in 2008 and 2009 they went on a series of expeditions to actually look at the depth of uh, of this river system and they found that in some cases the river was like 650 feet deep we're talking about very very deep uh environments and like much more so than anybody had thought of otherwise certainly much deeper than rivers typically are and so deep that uh, it was below the level at which light could penetrate the water so essentially really deep in this river system you had these different pockets of really dark um, nutrient poor environments and not only did they discover this one species, but they discovered six different species that were living in these really deep water environments in this river system. And all of them converged on very similar morphology. They were all eyeless. They all had these super elongate bodies. Um, they all had this, um, you know, they all completely lacked pigment. So this convergence over and over and over again on this morphology and each of those species is actually related to a species that lives, you know, on the surface in these uh, Congo Basin river systems as well, right? So it wasn't just that there was a species that moved into these deep, dark environments and then it speciated into a bunch of different species down there, but different species independently got trapped into these, in these deep water environments and independently evolved the same traits over and over again. And these are traits that we also see in the Demogorgon, right? So in this case, like we see that these similar types of environments are causing convergence on the same type of morphology. Related to that, um, in season two, one of the most interesting things to me is that when we get to see a little bit more of the vine system, that it has structures that look really similar to the Demogorgon. Mm. So we, we see these little spore sprayer structures. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, that looks a lot like the Demogorgon's face. That's yeah. really interesting to me. And the pigmentation is really similar. They have a lot of similar markings. So if you want to assume that they're different species, um, this makes a good case that they have they are different species that have just converged because they're in this similar very strange environment yeah so like some sort of a vertebrate you know type organism leading mm -hmm. to like you know the demogorgon and some maybe like plant or fungus type organism leading to this this vine that we see right and then there being some sort of weird connection between the two mm -hmm. that I'm still not quite sure of. No, my theory is that they actually are the same species. Ah. That's what I'm thinking, but, okay. but I could be wrong. Wait, so why do you think they're the same species? So it's a little bit complicated, but... Okay. Um, it's the best kind of answer. <laughs> so if we look at all of the people that are infected with slugs, it only happens with people who are attacked by the Demogorgon inside the Upside Down. Mm. So we have examples of people being attacked by the Demogorgon outside of the Upside Down. We also have examples of people treading into the upside down and coming out unscathed and those people do not get an infection mm -hmm. but the people who are attacked in that environment are the ones that have some sort of an infection and so i started thinking about what if these people are being infected by the demogorgon that we know and and that 
maybe egg implantation is being fertilized by these spores that we're seeing in the air. Mm. And so maybe it's it's those two factors combined that actually lead to the proliferation of the species. Wow. So it was like they're they're getting their lungs are basically being impregnated yes. by this this weird like snowfall that we see or something like right, that. Right, exactly. Mm. Yeah, these um, strangely fungal spore Sporing. projectors. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I mean, it's it's either that or or the the demogorgon and the and the vines are like separate species that are both reproducing asexually, mm. um, which is possible. But I I also feel that. Um, when we see Will at the end of season one, um, he he's clearly very ill, and he has that like vine down his throat. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering to myself, like, what if what if this is the vines participating in um, sort of rearing up the children? Um, maybe it's sort of a nursing situation that's happening. So possibly um, Will already has the the baby slugs in his lungs or something, and that vine going down his throat is like maybe feeding them nutrients, maybe protecting them mm. because if he coughs them up, then they're done for. So it makes sense to have some kind of a plug in there to make sure that they aren't expelled. Yeah, and that's interesting because we actually see this a lot with different types of parasites as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so things like uh, like the jewel wasp, right, which is also called the cockroach terminator. Yes. Um, these things, uh, you're talking about creepiness. Um, you know, basically, you know, the mothers will like hunt down uh, a cockroach and bring it into the burrow and... Um, she'll use her stinger to um, inject um, this cocktail essentially into their brain, which changes the way that they behave, uh, changes their personality, and makes them very sort of docile. Uh, meanwhile, she'll lay her eggs, and then those eggs essentially slowly eat that cockroach from the inside out. And we see different variations of this, uh, especially in the invertebrate world, where um, you have um, you know parasites that will infect uh, parasitic insects that will infect spiders and they're able to behaviorally manipulate them in such a way that uh, instead of building their normal webs those spiders will actually build the uh, the nesting material for the parasites offspring right so this sort of behavioral manipulation and that's kind of what we see exactly with uh, with will at the end because I mean after he comes back his personality is totally changed right. and then so this idea of the the what's it called the mind flare right 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 this sort of behavioral manipulation mm-hmm. you know it suggests this parasitic interaction mm-hmm. um, that that might be playing out there that's fascinating and to me I I don't think it makes any sense for the vines to participate in that interaction of both paralyzing the host and protecting the young unless it was the same species mm. hmm. yeah I mean I thought that was a really interesting point too that it's happening to the people that are actually in the upside down space versus in the real world. Because I very explicitly remember, I think in season one, Jonathan was pinned yes. down by one yes. of the Demogorgons and it was actually drooling into its mouth. But to date, we haven't seen any adverse effect on him. Exactly. Meanwhile, like Will and Barb, R.I.P. Barb. Oh, Barb. R.I.P. Mm. Uh, Why y'all did that to Barb? Yeah, Barb, Barb got it the worst. <laughs> Come on, man. Of all time. There's also like five other people that died in season one, but sure. we don't talk I about mean, them. I mean, Bob, Bob, well, okay, Bob's season two, but Bob's yeah. on somebody's refrigerator. He's got like a, a drawing in honor of him. It's Barb's true. people just moved on past Barb so yeah. quick. And then her mom's like, hey, have you seen Barb? And then there's like, nah, nah. nah. I guess it's fine. I mean, I, I think, know. I don't know, she must be in the library or something. The 80s like, must have been a wild time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lord forbid somebody have glasses in the 80s. <laughs> Nobody gives a damn. There you go. 
But uh, yeah, so like I guess that distinction, right? Like, mm-hmm. why didn't it happen to Jonathan? Right. And the fact that their their mating structures seem so similar, that, that the spore sprayers look very structurally similar to the Demogorgon's face, which if we're thinking it's kind of like a face hugger situation, like leering over Jonathan looks like he was about to like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> put something down in his lungs. So, um, but uh, what I love about this is that if this is true, then that means that the Demogorgon is actually female and mm. is a mother who is um, making babies and is just trying to protect her young. Yeah, she's just doing her motherly thing. Yeah. Y'all leave the Demogorgon alone. Mm-hmm. Always trying to villainize somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and we can add her to the league of uh, wonderful, terrifying uh, lady super monsters. Like yeah, <laughs> like the alien queen. T-Rex. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so one of the things that, that's also interesting to me about the Demogorgon is you know, some of the other characteristics that we see pop up with this character. So, um, you know, one of the things that's most terrifying is the sounds, right? And it's like this, like, it's like obviously like the growling and screaming and clicking, right? The clicking thing that's always like, you know, it's like, it's like jaws that don't, right? It's like when you hear the clicking, you know something's about to happen, Mm -hmm. right? And the Mm -hmm. lights start flickering, et cetera. Um, But one of the things that we found actually in, in our world is that, in organisms that adapt to these really dark environments, they actually have to evolve different ways of communicating. You know, so one of these examples is um, the Mexican tetra, which is a, a fish that has adapted to these cave environments. Same situation, eyeless, pigmentless, elongated body. But they've also, which is very strange for a fish, they've evolved a different way of communicating by way of acoustics. So when they interact, uh, they have um, when they have these aggressive interactions, um, they actually make these clicking sounds that you know tells you know the other to to like you know move away, back up, otherwise you're gonna you're gonna get this thunder basically. Right? But in a situation that's completely dark and you can no longer communicate uh, through visual means, right? This sort of the evolution of acoustic signaling can be incredibly incredibly adaptive. So I, as part of me wonders like what is happening there. The other thing is that. In when we go when we see people intentionally go to the upside down, you know, it seems to be a very sort of caustic environment. Uh, and you know, people go and they like sort of strapped in these like hazmat suits. And there's something about that environment that seems to be like physically or physiologically dangerous to us uh, as organisms. And we also see this pop up in a really interesting way in a lot of these dark environments, specifically in cave environments. Um, because these environments can also become incredibly acidic. And in some cases, the water it can be so acidic that it can actually burn human skin. Yet you still have fish species that are living out their entire lives in these environments. Uh, so super low pHs, but their physiology, right? Like how they're, um, how they're sequestering ions and how those ions are able to like move through their cells has to fundamentally change in order for them to essentially not be burned alive, you know, in these environments that, re- that they're living in. So again, I think some really interesting connections between these like extreme like, cave environments and, uh, and what we're seeing in the upside down. That's fascinating. Yeah. 
Speaking of water, I think it's really interesting that we don't really see any water in the Upside Down. Um, hmm. it's, imp it's implied that there must be some kind of moisture there because so much of what we see is this like mucusy sort of gross covering on everything. Um, everything does seem to be quite slimy. Right. So it's like there's some kind of liquid there in some form, but like like when Barb wakes up in the pool, there's no water in the pool. Hmm. Um, and... And, and so that's that's really interesting to me and, and makes me wonder, has it always been this way or is it another case of these inva this invasive species completely depleting um, all of the resources of this area, potentially including water? Yeah. And so and that to me is very extreme, because even in the most extreme cases in our world, right, in these cave environments and deep sea environments, regardless, like if there's no oxygen, if there's no sunlight, Organisms can generally find a way mm -hmm. yeah, and have found a way to get around it. But the one thing that you absolutely need is water. Right. right? Without water, there's no life. It's the reason why when we go, when we're like looking at other planets, if, like, if this thing can hold life, it has to have water. Mm -hmm. um, it's like sort of a universal norm. So the fact that we don't actually see any water in that yeah. environment, I think, again, probably either like we just haven't seen it or potentially you know, that is sort of part of the reason why they're dependent on like moving through this barrier into these other parallel worlds to again scavenge those resources. Well, that brings up an interesting question, even just to the extent of how long some of these people are surviving in the Upside Down. Will was there for an entire season. He was there for a week. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound as long now when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> a week is also equivalent to how long it took me to watch a season. Of yeah. it. <laughs> but still, like he's and, yeah. and when that's we see a long him time, especially without water. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and when we see him at the end, he's showing signs of extreme dehydration. So mm -hmm. that makes mm. a lot of sense. Like it's kind of amazing that he's lived that long. So yeah. I mean, that also suggests that there is like when you're um, talking about these whatever these tendrils that are like you know being inserted into his body that they're has to be some physiological effect as well, like some sort of like metabolic slowdown that sure. would com that would prevent him from completely dehydrating, something that would lower his basal metabolic rate, Ooh. right? That would yeah. sort of extend you know, his his lifespan under those extreme conditions. Yeah, that's totally where I was going. With yeah, that. I thought I saw it on your face. Thank um, you. you know, I, I I pulled that from you, and I appreciate it. It's always there. <laughs> it's it's the symbiotic relationship that we have formed. Oh. Wow during the during the the course of 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 this podcast experience right hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish everyone could see how deeply we were looking into each other's <laughs> eyes just now um so when we're talking about the demo like obviously we have these different forms and the demogorgon seems to cycle through you know these what were the yeah, what were you're the welcome. forms again uh, slug yes. polywog Frogagorgon, let's call it, uh -huh. Categorgon, Demodog, my favorite, and Demogorgon. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we're generally moving from, you know, this um, sort of like legless, um, sort of squirming Simple. form. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're getting the, um, you know, the presence of uh, forelimbs and hindlimbs. Well, amphibian. Yeah. So like forelimbs first, right, with uh, when we first see Dart. Is that in, mm -hmm. uh, and that's in season, season two. two. Yes. And then we get, um, and then we get the hind limbs begin to present later on, like as they get bigger. Uh, and, and then, then the not a face. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Cause it does seem to have like some kind of a, like weird kind of polywoggy type face, yeah. like amphibian, mm -hmm. like tadpole kind of face that then gets like lost and remodeled into right. like this very flower-esque kind of form. Now, this is really interesting to me because this reminds me of a species 
of, uh, of toad, actually, that occurs in the Western U.S. called a spadefoot toad. Now, obviously, toads are amphibians. Amphibians are known for, they're known for their complex life cycles as well. And, you know, moving from this sort of aquatic form that we see with tadpoles um, to the formation of hind limbs, foreign limbs, and then moving eventually into a terrestrial form, right? very similar to what we see with the demogorgon. What's interesting about the spadefoot toad is that in different populations, you can actually get the production of two different types of tadpoles, right? So under most conditions, you have this very generalist form of, uh, of tadpole that has a very sort of specialized feeding morphology of like, you know, relatively narrow, um, a relatively narrow mouth. And it feeds on uh, things like detritus. It's, you know, feeds on a bunch of different stuff, um, but, you know, very kind of omnivorous lifestyle. But in some environmental circumstances, some populations actually produce a specialized carnivorous form, which feeds exclusively on things like shrimp and other tadpoles. Whoa. And so, and this is what we call, this is like developmental plasticity, right? So you get a single genome, right? The genomes themselves have not fundamentally changed. But the expression, I'm assuming, is changing? Exactly, right? So the interaction of, like, the environmental influence on how that genome expresses a phenotype fundamentally changes. And in this case, you know, can change it from, you know, this generous lifestyle, very similar to what we see with Dart in the mm -hmm. beginning, eating, what, a Snicker bar or whatever Three musketeers. Three musketeers. Yeah, three, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, three musketeers. Jesus, <laughs> you guys are really about your candy right now. Three Musketeers. I apologize. <laughs> and well, Dart, D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. Oh. Three Musketeers. Uh, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. All right. PhD, yeah. MD, MA, LMNOP, You're welcome. <laughs> so uh, we get D'Artagnan. Uh, eating his three musketeers, um, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly aggressive about him. Kind of adorable, a little slimy, but, you know, somewhat adorable. But then one day, all of a sudden, cat's gone, and now you get, you get something very fundamentally different in terms of its morphology. And we see the same thing happen with these, with these uh, spadefoot toads, right? I mean, in terms of, like, the entire skull and jaw morphology of these tadpoles changes so that they can be predators like specialized predators instead of these omnivores so so a lot of really interesting crossovers there as well that's amazing yeah. so with the uh spadefoot toad how quick is the change in morphology because when we see mm. the demogorgon kind of progress it's rapid right super in fast a matter of days you're leaping cycles uh, so, so with the spadefoot toads, actually, I mean, this is also a pretty rapid transformation. Um, you know, I think that it can happen, you know, within the course of, of just like several days, actually. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. So, wow. Okay. So we're seeing things that are completely true to life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So basically the Demogorgon's real and it's called a spadefoot toad. <laughs> and it's coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> hide your kids and hide your wife. Um, no, but um, you know this this idea of phenotypic this idea of phenotypic plasticity. I mean, it is a very important principle, like when it comes to evolution, and it's something that you know we are just sort of beginning to appreciate. You know, so it's really interesting. So this idea that you know environments can induce like different phenotypes, like even when you haven't changed the genetic variation of an organism at all, 
early on in the in the study of evolution, it wasn't very well appreciated. You know, it was actually thought that you know when plasticity was around, that you know evolution you know typically could not occur. Therefore, plasticity wasn't important really in the evolutionary process. But you know, with what we call like the modern evolutionary synthesis, this kind of updating of you know our understanding of evolutionary theory, we're getting to understand that plasticity actually may play a really, really important role in adaptation. As a matter of fact, plasticity, this sort of like variability, this ability to change um, within the within the course of an individual's lifetime with respect to changing environments, that in itself can be the substrate of adaptation. That in itself can be an adaptation. Uh, so trying to understand the mechanisms therein, like especially like the regulatory mechanisms that cause um, like the complete remodeling of the jaw morphology of a toad when it has, you know, something, you know, when it has the opportunity to be predatory versus omnivorous, right? Those are still things that we're still trying to figure out. And generally speaking, like we're still trying to understand the mechanisms, you know, through which plasticity contribute to, to adaptive evolution as a process. But it can occur very rapidly. And in the case of the Demogorgon, it seems that it's happening like multiple times in succession. I mean, I have to imagine that um, the, the slug metabolism, I, I'm just assuming that they're in people's lungs because mm -hmm. he coughs it up. And so that's what makes sense to me. But that it that it's possibly feeding on like some kind of like fluid or like maybe getting direct access to like blood or something mm -hmm. like that um and then transitioning into like the stage where it's outside of the body it seems to be like eating mostly carbohydrates and then like that switch happens and oh it needs protein yeah. it needs protein right now um that's really wild to me and then i guess from there on out it's a predator a carnivore yeah <laughs> and so but at some point things get even more complicated yes right so because in season three like we see all kinds of new nastiness with you know when you have like you know these like sort of goopy this like goopy demogorgon thing happening where it's like you know it's like a slime mold or it's like some kind of nonsense yeah um and but i i don't know for some they had to make it even more gross but like do you think this is like yet another sort of part of the life cycle is this something fundamentally different what do you what do you I make of this i think it's related okay. but i don't think it's the demogorgon species so okay. so from my perception um there's the demogorgon species which is in some kind of a complex sort of toxic symbiotic relationship with the mind flare mm. um and and through that it gives it the ability to like rip through dimensions and like maybe gives it a, a little bit of extra power the ability to like communicate as a pack um but also like it forces the demogorgon species to sort of give up its autonomy to this like other thing mm, kind of um, like a hive mind exactly, situation right and so in season three i think what's happening is is that um now we have the mind flare but it's without its host so it needs to find another host mm. so it starts by infecting rats first um and then slowly it also begins to infect people um and it tried this out in season two with will but i think um struggled maybe a little bit because uh of something that we sometimes call host control mm -hmm. that when it's when it's trying to be in the same kind of a symbiotic relationship with will um and ex exerting its will onto will mm -hmm. um that that will subconscious is able to fight back a little bit more than maybe a demogorgon would be able mm. to um and so maybe changing tax a little bit in season three maybe being a little bit more careful but it seems that the monstrous thing that we're seeing in season three it's it's sort of equivalent to demogorgons but it's made of people yeah um 
and that's really wild and terrifying to yeah me. that it um it, in some senses it completely gives up on just like mind controlling them and is like you know what i'm gonna break you down for parts uh and just use you for what i want like marionettes right yeah right yeah which is uh, you know so if we consider that in the context of parasitism that also becomes interesting mm -hmm. um because that to me like brings to mind like basic epidemiology right like right host jumping yes right so like if you you know if you have these two organisms like the mind flare and the demogorgon who have like have some parasitic or symbiotic or both kind of, of both, yeah. yeah kind of relationship going on like obviously there's not just the interaction now but the evolutionary history of right. that interaction and how it's played out over who knows how long these things have been around like bopping through universes tearing things apart exactly but now when you get you know, one part of that combination that's separated from its traditional host has to find out how to now occupy and invade a new host. I mean, I hate to bring it up again, but it's very venom. It is very venom. Yeah. You know, and because there's like, there's a whole, there's a different immune system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's different physiology that needs to be manipulated. Like yeah. obviously, you know, the way that a Demogorgon's mind works, you know, is very different. You know, pretty fundamentally different, it seems like, right. than the way that a, a person's brain works. Different environment, different metabolism. I mean, one of the things that it seems that it has to be careful with with human beings is that we live in a warmer, brighter climate, and it seems that the shadow monster really doesn't like that. Mm -hmm. And so it has to, like, exert its control to make sure that it stays safe and that it can, like, use the humans to manipulate their own environment to maintain those conditions yeah. um, where it's best thriving. Yeah, and again, right, that light sensitivity... Mm -hmm. I mean, again, suggests that like there's some evolutionary adaptation to these like low light environments exactly. to start with. And it makes sense that if the if the if the mind flayer doesn't like heat and light, then the demogorgon is kind of the perfect host, you mm. know, because they they both thrive in the exact same environment. So it makes sense that they would work together. Yeah, and it also brings I mean it brings to mind sort of like metabolic strategy I think yes. for these organisms as well because it's like when I when I look at them, I, it actually seems like. You know, if they're like somewhat amphibious, they like, are a little bit reptilian. Yeah. So maybe like I would think that maybe they would actually be like ectothermic. Like maybe their yeah. their temperature would be somewhat dependent on the external temperature. And they're mostly nocturnal, so they you know like to hunt when it's a little bit cooler outside. Um, yeah, but yeah. if there are they are extremely temperature sensitive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then it also suggests that either they have to have you know a really intense ability to thermoregulate behaviorally, like being able to find like warm and cool spots really efficiently in order to like maintain their optimum mm -hmm. type of performance, or they actually, they have to be able to produce their own heat or, you know, yeah. something like that, something. you know, in order to, um, in order to like maintain you know, like some established uh, range of, of thermal function. Something to keep the Demogorgon alive, but not so much that it would like purge it of the shadow monster infection relationship I guess yeah um, yeah and then what's also interesting what we see in season three is that when it's when the shadow monster is trying to work with these new hosts with with human beings for like an extended period of time um, we see them doing this absolutely terrifying thing which is eating like fertilizer and other terrifying household chemicals mm -hmm. um, and and it's possible that it's it's doing that so that it can maybe maintain um, so that it, 
sorry, so that it maybe can source some chemicals, some nutrients that it was getting easily with the Demogorgon, but maybe like with human physiology, it's not getting so much of. Mm. I read um, someone on Reddit was was talking about um, the different compounds that the people are consuming and made the observation that most of them are very nitrogen heavy. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this is like the shadow monster's way of like sourcing nitrogen because for some reason that allows it to interact better with its host. Interesting. Oh. Which makes me think then um, a little bit about what we're learning about the human microbiome, that um, that our own gut microbiome seems to have an influence on what our cravings are um, and, and our own metabolism, mm-hmm. the types of foods that we seek out, and that um, depending on like the balance that you have in your own microbiome, that could make you more want a brownie than, mm-hmm. say, a salad. Um, we're still figuring it out. It's still very early stages, but that seems to be something that we're learning is that um, these symbiotic interactions can definitely influence what we want to eat. Yeah. So, well, first of all, now I want a brownie. Thanks very much for that. Um, (laughs) You know, but when we're talking about this, one of the things that, you know, we see with the Demogorgon and actually, this is the thing that I think is, is just always, it's always funny to me when it comes to like monster movies where like there's a scene where a person is walking, like we see, um, uh, like when we see Nancy walking through the woods and she and she sees the Demogorgon for the first time, it's feeding on like a deer or yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then it like stands up and, you know, and it yells and then it starts running after her. And it was like, well, f- like, I mean, looking at this as a biologist, I'm like, well, why you already eaten? Mm-hmm. Like you're literally eating something right now. Like, why are you going to move from eating that to chase something else down to eat that when you already have food? here like in right in front of you but another really interesting connection is that in these like low light like really intense environments like cave environments these um you know or um or very deep depth uh uh, environments they also have a tendency to be super nutrient poor right so it is very difficult to get resources and in those types of environments where you put something like a fish that's involving that's evolving in these um, in these systems where food is very hard to come by there actually is adaptive innovation associated with feeding so in um, in several fish species you get the evolution of um, of what's called hyperphagia right so basically this like insatiable desire to eat food and this is caused by mutations in uh, in a specific gene, uh, melanocortin-4 receptor, which in humans is also associated with um, uh, with aspects of uh, hunger and obesity and metabolism. Um, but functional mutations have evolved in these in these nutrient-poor environments that essentially drive these organisms to have an insatiable, insatiable appetite. So, you know, while it's sort of funny to look at. You know, evolutionarily speaking, if this Demogorgon and these other like forms, be they the same species or different species, you know, if they have been evolving in a super nutrient poor environment, right, the evolution of this like hyperphagia, this like insatiable desire to consume resources, right, even when we see with the vines, it's just like stripping all the life from everything that they're touching. I mean, this could just be an evolutionary response to the environments in which they evolved. That makes a lot of sense, and I think we see another example of that right off the bat in season one. Um, we see the Demogorgon attacking a scientist. Hmm. Um, scientists running down the halls, presumably grabbed by the Demogorgon and, and taken back to the Upside Down, and then immediately afterwards, 
comes back and starts hunting again, Mm -hmm. this time for Will. Um, And so I was thinking that through, and I was like, wow, uh, maybe it has an incredibly fast metabolism, um, or maybe it's that thing where you were talking about where it it starts eating one thing, but it's already on to the next thing. Um, Yeah, and and potentially is also evidence that it's maybe... uh, hyper-focused on gathering people, not just for eating, but also as, like, a breeding ground yeah. um, materials for for young. Yeah, so, I mean, in this sort of storage, you know, I mean, we see this, ha- like, you know, think, think about um, animals that, um, you know, that hibernate through the winter, mm-hmm. you know, or that have to survive without hibernating through the winter, mm-hmm. right? I mean, hibernating animals, like, they go through this period where they're insatiable, and they eat as much as they can and get as fat as they can you know so that they can just live off of those resources through through winter but then you also have other species that just actively store things constantly um you know sometimes you get you know acorns that get put in the trees by like acorn woodpeckers uh you get um you get like rodents that have these stashes and you know sometimes like the stash they are stashing way more food sure. than any one organism could possibly ever eat Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter right because they're just driven you know they're evolutionarily they're just like driven to store because you you never know how harsh the environment is going to be and the more you have the better makes me think of a bug's life as they're like slowly storing up this like giant stockpile of seeds but then something happens and they lose most of it Mm. and it's like oh no we have to build up the store again like yeah it makes sense you want to save as much food as you can i mean even human beings participate in like this sort of hoarding like behavior like we have refrigerators we have pantries like i mean right now everyone's freaked out about the coronavirus and so Mm -hmm. if you've been to costco recently uh you'll see that people are like really clearing out the food and water supplies so like even as human beings i think we are want to do some of these things yeah i mean sometimes to an extreme to what we call like hoarding yes um (laughs) yeah but What's interesting is that I think this also like speaks to, you know, the I think maybe underappreciated intelligence of the Demogorgon as well, because a lot of times when you have the evolution of these extreme, you know, storage behaviors, a lot of other stuff has to come along. Like, you know, what is good, you know, like what is the good in being able to store a bunch of stuff if you can't remember where you put it? True. All right. So a lot of times what comes along with this sort of extreme you know, I'll call like pack rat phenotype, like, you know, putting a bunch of different things in a bunch of different caches all over the place is actually um, the evolution of a more sensitive um, spatial reasoning right? in order to, to be able to readily identify all the different places that you've, that you've stored things. So when we see the efficiency of the Demogorgon, like as a hunter and its ability to like track specific things down, right, the fact that one, it's living in this kind of mirror version of Hawkins in the first place, mm-hmm. combined with the fact that, you know, maybe it has this, you know, really sensitive spatio-temporal memory right. uh, actually maybe makes it a really efficient hunter in that sense as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a really good... It, it participates in ambush predation pretty frequently where it knows exactly where somebody is and is able to burst through exactly mm-hmm. where they are, even though they're tracking them from the other side, like yeah. from the upside down. I think that's absolutely wild. Yeah. And definitely, definitely uh, must relate to some sort of higher level spatial reasoning. It's terrifying. Hmm. So what is it that is getting their attention from a predatory perspective? Is it the blood? Is it the mission from the mind flare? Like, how do they know how to attack or go after? 
definitely blood is a big factor. Yeah. I mean, we see we that, saw that with Barb. Right, right. We see it like with bleeding Barb. into the pool. We see it with the deer. Mm. Um, it's harmed and then immediately gets snagged up. Um, see Jonathan cut their hands. Perfect to example. Lure it out. And yeah. it comes immediately. Right. Um, yeah. So that's that's definitely it. We. I mean, we also see examples of it attacking people who aren't bleeding, like like Will and the scientist in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah. But for different purposes, it seems like, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, not necessarily. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. So, I mean, so it seems like there's kind of two things at play, right? There's sort of like the basal kind of predatory instincts mm-hmm. of, you know, like being attracted to blood and so on. But then you also see these like higher pa- higher patterns of like pack organization mm-hmm. and like, you know, kind of social systems and then like obviously hierarchies between like the flayer and the demogorgon like this sort of higher organization that suggests that you know there's some aspect of communication and or behavioral manipulation that is that's also a driver on top of the sort of basic predatory tools that 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 the demogorgon has at its disposal yeah because it's an interesting effect even as a viewer like I'm never quite sure why it's show, showing up, but I'm always terrified. Like, I'm not yeah. sure if somebody's about to be devoured or if they're going to get drugged back off and, you know, farmed out to future offspring. Mm-hmm. Or, like, what? But And I don't think we see it a lot in season one, but definitely in season two, that, like, hive mind sort of mentality. It seems that, like, all of these organisms that are infected by the mind flare, all of them communicate back to that central organism mm. and, like... And so in that way, the mind flare is able to see all of the things that these other organisms see. And so like, maybe that's why in season one, we don't really see that very much because really we just have this one organism with one perspective that's mm. like really just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. But then, then by season two, it's like, all right, we're here, we're surviving. Now we're taking over. Yeah. So going back to what you were talking about um, with the with the coloration that you see with these organisms, yeah. um, that, that a lot of times they're very colorless. So... Sort of a spoiler for season three. Um, mm-hmm. At the very end, we we see, and I'll try to keep this as short as possible for yeah. those who haven't seen it. So if you haven't seen season three, now's your chance to go away, yes. watch it, and come back. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So at the end of season three, we see a demodog uh-huh. um, that's in a Russian research facility, but it looks different. Um, so most of the Demogorgons that we've seen so far are like kind of scaly and dark. Um, they have the same sort of uh, the same sort of phenotype uh, outer, the same sort of outer phenotype that we're seeing from the vines, like all of that, the same coloration. But this one Demodog that we see is actually kind of like pink pinkish white almost albino mm. um and and sort of sort of slimy and a little bit clean looking which interesting. is really interesting to me and so that that made me wonder um if part of this phenotype that we're usually seeing is actually due to the infection from the mind flare um uh. that possibly anything that is infected by the mind flare develops eventually this visual appearance of uh of, of darkness and like the yellow spots and whatnot um, but that if you were to take that same organism and raise it outside of the influence of that symbiont, that it actually looks quite different. Interesting. And potentially behaves different? Possibly, yeah. Um, and, and so another example that I think we might see of this um, is Dart. Dart looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. He has spots on his back where he doesn't have that coloration. 
And also we know that Dart is less susceptible to the leanings of whatever the mind flayer is telling him to do, that he's mm. more able to like sort of think on his own and like form relationships outside of that core relationship. Um, and so that makes me wonder if like possibly this coloration is a sign of infection. And maybe if in, if in future seasons, if we're going to see what the Demogorgon species looks like outside of the context of the mind flayer, and I don't know, maybe we could team up and defeat the mind flayer together. Who knows? Interesting. Interesting. Like Chris Pratt and his and his Velociraptor kind yes, of thing. Yes, exactly. Dope. That'd be super dope. So, well, I'm really excited to see what comes of Stranger Things. I mean, the series as a whole, I mean, has just been series has been, I mean, absolutely amazing. Like, obviously, it's been a cultural phenomenon. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see sort of what happens with Hawkins and. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, like all the, it's amazing, like how quickly like the kids have grown up in in the first three seasons. You know, it's like everybody's like getting cracked voices and acne now, all and gangly and weird looking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I love the sort of coming of age component to this. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm I'm super excited to see what comes down the pipeline, and I want to thank you so much. Angela for yes. being here. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for having me guys. I, I absolutely love this podcast and it's just been a joy to talk about one of my favorite shows. Oh awesome. You stop that. No, yeah, go we ahead. Have back. You you <laughs> she's talking like that. Yeah, so what what was you saying? Down. How, what 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 aspects of this do you like so much? Well, you you're just it? so wonderful and so intelligent <laughs> and so funny. And, no. uh, <laughs> that last one was for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And as always, Arian, man, it's always good to have you in the lab. Um, this is this is fun. Yeah, loving it. it it's good a, to be back. It was so good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I don't think people realize, but we're all sitting in a room together, and yeah, it's just yeah. that much more magical when yeah. that's able to happen. So we've only done this like one other time with the errands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that we're gonna have to try to do this more often for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, really yeah. great. It's great. Cool. Well, with that, I appreciate you guys. All right. Yeah. Ditto. Much love. Much love. Peace. Thanks again so much for joining us once again. I hope everyone is staying safe out there amid this COVID pandemic. Don't forget to wash your hands regularly and stay the hell indoors. We're all going to get through this together, but alone because we're social distancing. But while you're social distancing, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And send us your nerdiest questions at biologyofsuperheroes at gmail.com. So with that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.